to The Truth In This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today's guest is a textile artist, farmer, natural dyer, and the founder of Blue Light Junction. Please welcome Kenya Miles. Welcome to the podcast. And how are you doing? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Um, you know, interviews are few and far between. So I'm excited to hear what we come up with today. Yeah, I think it's going to be fantastic. I, um, I did did some research. I didn't go too too deep because you know sometimes you feel like all right, I'm 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 lining up things. I feel like I'm stalking online a little bit. I was like, let's learn and then ask questions. <laughs> be yeah. intellectually curious. Yeah. So. I wanted a very high level in that introduction or what have you named few bullet points. It was literally a copy and paste. Copy and paste. Um, could you share with us the, those vital stats about your background and describe Blue Light Junction for us? Yeah. Um, so part of my journey, I will say, um, to natural dyes has been a very sort of um, intuitive one. And I went to school. So I'm originally from um, the the area, which is what we called it when I was growing up. But um, I was born in D.C. and raised between there and PG County. So um, being in Baltimore feels, uh, you know, closer to home. But I've lived all over. I went to New York when I was um, 17 for college and was really working in um, graphics, um, on-air um, animation, design, motion graphics and things. So did film and television for several years in New York um, and then was really drawn more to using my hands, but I didn't really have a relationship to it. So I um, decided to leave New York and move to Mexico. Um, and so that really was like what I consider the beginning of my relationship to textiles, fiber and um, natural dyes ultimately. So I lived in Mexico for a year um, in between um, Oaxaca City and a small village called Teotitlan del Valle, which is the weaving village. I learned how to weave, um, embroider and do all kinds of things. And so I basically spent um, that time learning different crafts and traditions. Um, Fast forward to traveling um, for an additional year, moving back to New York, and then ultimately feeling like the West Coast was m more like in relationship to what I had been experiencing in Mexico. Obviously, it once was Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, so I moved uh, out West and um, just kind of began this journey of exploration. I continued to travel for probably the greater part of 10 years. Um, Every uh, year I would take like four months off and just um, live in another country with another community, different spans of time and um, learn a different technique. And so in sort of the midst of that, I was becoming, um, yeah, just an entrepreneur doing my own thing. My parents are entrepreneurs. So was really looking at like um, being an artist, but having some autonomy, but also having this background in um, motion graphics, which um, when you look at what people are getting paid in tech is nothing. Uh, <laughs> but for me, I, I was making, I was making a good living. So um, I was able to just continue to travel um, and save up every year and kind of have these experiences. And then ultimately, coming into a project with a friend of mine where um, she was working on, uh, well, we decided to work on a, um, a bag competition that was out of New York through the CFBA. And part of that was we decided to do sustainability. She's from El Salvador. Um, 
and I think really brought in the idea of using indigo. She was like, my community uses it. I was like, great, let's try it. Her mom sent us a bunch of stuff from El Salvador. We kind of got started. And she was like, I, I've never done this before. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, so um, I basically spent three months like super obsessed with trying to figure out how to build um, an indigo vat. And if you have, you know, no relationship to indigo, if you do, indigo is a very magical um, color. It's a magical energy. And um, essentially it took time to understand, like it's not soluble in water. So I had to find a way to reduce it. That's, you know, it happens through a fermentation process, um, either chemically or naturally. Um, And it's obviously spanning uh, many cultures. Um, Most cultures have an indigo um, history. And so I really am sort of grateful for um, that introduction. And that sort of started my natural dye journey with indigo and is probably why it's the thing I'm most committed to. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that, I think that's going to end up as answering one of my later questions. So I'm cutting that question out now. Thanks, Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You're welcome. That's what I'm here to do. Shut it down. So, um, and, and, and this is slightly different, but to that question, but I think it, it has some similarities. Do you do you have a a favorite? I mean, I understand that there is a relationship with with indigo, but do you, indigo? But do you have a a f- favorite natural dye color? What what is a favorite there for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say outside of indigo, um, for me, my relationship to Mexico um, is very strongly. Um, grounded in my work and sure. practice and visual sort of references. And so cochineal, which is um, a bug, a parasite that lives on the prickly pear, um, the nopal cactus, um, mm-hmm. is this, you know, um, ancient color that um, really is pre-Hispanic, um, you know, goes back to the Mayan civilization and it has um just the most beautiful qualities, um, as well as it being, you know, um, a part of medicine and ceremony and adornment. And so those are the things that for me, like looking at the work that we're doing at Blue Light Junction um, is really looking at those things like the alchemy of the color, but also the magic of the medicine, the ceremony that happens through um practices that are indigenous techniques that um also come into play when you're using them in multiple ways not just for textiles you know it's not just fiber um where these colors can be applied or have been applied historically so you 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 touched on and thank you 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 touched on initially um sustainability and I, i i realized that in terms of let's say um textiles in terms of like fabrics and such um people are trying to move away from like fast fashion and have something that's more sustainable what have you that's one part of a definition I've heard. And, you know, from your standpoint, since you mentioned it, what is sustainability? What does that mean to you? And I'm not saying in a got you sort of way. I just want to kind of better understand it. Yeah, I think that um, for me, one of the things that I want to honor is that, you know, what isn't sustainable is a system that perpetuates um, quantity over quality. Um, people over, you know, um, or product over people. And so I really, I think that when we're looking at natural dyes, natural dyes have historically prior to, um, 
the Industrial Revolution were the ways in which color um, was used to enhance um, everything, you know, leather, uh, fiber, um, a variety of things. And so those practices were also harmful because it was looking at um, producing for the larger class. It was looking at producing through um, once the Industrial uh, Revolution did come, like thinking about um, manufacturing at a high level. Um, and so you're really setting yourself up to understand that these systems are what is not tenable. Um, and so I think that sustainability for me, for us at Blue Light Junction, um, which is a space of full of collaborators, um, and I think I didn't answer the question of what is Blue Light Junction, but I will. Yeah. Um, you know, we're really thinking about what are the things that are essential. Um, we have a community die day that um, happens twice a year, and we're really looking at people bringing things in that need to be refreshed, thinking about repair, thinking about um, keeping things longer. Yeah. Um, also, the way in which we um, we have a garden that's adjacent to the studio, and so um, that's Hidden Harvest, um, which runs on one side as a vegetable garden, and we run the, the natural dye garden on the other side. But just thinking about, like, we're not here to sort of submit, you know, put our will onto um, the garden. The garden shouldn't submit to what it is that we want. And so instead of using the word weed, we call it plants that we're not cultivating, which, you know, to hear my son say it at six and a half is really funny. Um, but he's committed to it, you know, because they, they are not weeds, you know, that's a judgment, that's a decision about the value of something. And so when we think about sustainability, really it's about like, how do we engage with ourselves and the things that are around us? And primarily for me, you know, we cannot buy all of the hundreds of clothing <laughs> items that are available or, you know, shoes or whatever. But ultimately, if you still think that things are disposable, if you still don't understand that care is the most important part of um, any relationship and relationships yeah. are, you know, um, really about everything that is around us and not just um, people, um, plants being in relationship to that and, and, you know, earth also means like letting something grow, even yeah. though I'm uncertain what it may or may not do. And for me to sit and listen and learn from that plant um, is important. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so with it, uh, let me let me let, let me reinvite it. Uh, what is Blue Light Junction? <laughs> oh, thank you so much for asking. I'm so excited to tell you. Blue Light Junction. Um, Blue Light Junction is a studio in Greenmount West. We're in central Baltimore. Um, we are an alternative color lab processing center. Um, we work primarily um, with natural dyes through botanical um, expressions, botanical colors. We're also an educational space. We're a workshop space. Um, through the alternative color lab, we offer people the opportunity to bring in items that they um, are looking to enhance or um sort of to the pursuit of using um, medicine or um, pigments through um, botanical colorways. Um, so we offer a variety of things. We're also currently running an artist residency um, through Blue Light Junction called the Ebora Art and Research Residency. 
um, which allow um, six artists and researchers um, two months to come be in the space with a studio and a stipend to really understand um, their work through the lens of the things that we're doing in community um, at Blue Light Junction in the studio as well as in the garden. So this is what Blue Light Junction is. We're also growing through um, innovation works, um, partnership, a project called Nature's Color. That's two years. Um, this is our second season growing. We're growing with seven other urban farms in Baltimore City to grow natural dyes. And um, we process them at Blue Light Junction. So there's so many things that we are, and we're really trying to build this um, full circle system in Baltimore yeah. City where we're manufacturing, we're growing, we're um, you know looking at entrepreneurs who are producing and need these these things for their um, their their products. So yeah. yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad we got that in there first take. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let, let's let's talk about the process a little bit um, in a very very high level because you know I, I think I think potentially with there being like workshops and there being education, that's one of the things that I, I heard in their education. I think this is kind of that sasson that introduction that kind of here's an appetizer for why you should be checking out blue light junction so could you share a bit about what that process looks like as and, and what are some of the maybe techniques that you've learned with with natural dye yeah well i've been a natural dyer for over 12 years going on 13 and a lot of that really looks like um constant experimentation you know there are ways in which i understand um, and i have practices for instance um, one of the practices that i'm really committed to um, is a practice that uh, is highly used in west africa the bogolo and fani of um, mali and people who work with mud cloth um, mm -hmm. and so thinking about um, the natural iron that's found um, in this mud and the tannins that they use tannins, which are present in, um, you know, all kinds of things, but teas, pomegranate, um, all of these things. And so using those tannins to react um, the mud to go from that sort of natural mud color to the blacks and, and really dark browns. Mm -hmm. um, so I use that practice um, very often in my own personal work and I'm really feel connected to it and, and, I am, you know, uh, African-American um, who has, you know, roots in Virginia. And but beyond that, there are all of these like legacies that are unknown within us. And I think that feels very much like um, one of the cultures I feel uh, mostly drawn to through practice. And so thinking a lot about how these techniques and this this work really goes into like expressing different um, cultures and knowledge transfer. Um, there are many other practices that, um, you know, can be really done simply where you're thinking about just making a tea bath, you know? Yeah. So you're taking some leaves that are either fresh or dried, putting them into um, water, letting that come to a simmer. And you take a fiber or um, depending, indigo doesn't need this process, but you would mordant it. So essentially, even when you're using chemical um, dyes, you have to have the color be beyond a stain. And so yeah. a dye and a stain are different, right? A dye sits on the surface, I mean, a stain sits on the surface, a dye penetrates and bonds to the fiber. And so 
we're really looking for that um, engagement. And so we use mordants. And so industrially, they used a lot of really heavy metals. Now it's kind of been whittled down to uh, potassium aluminum or ferrous sulfate. Um, and then there are um, techniques that are in indigenous communities, which we have yet to really, I think, exalt in the way that they deserve. But sure. thinking about those things where those dyes um, can be added to fiber using bioaccumulators. So using plants that are essentially removing aluminum from the um, atmosphere, from the from the earth, you know, Um so that those are the ways. So you'd have something that's mordanted. You would put it in your dye bath, and then just like that, you get color. You know, it's okay. really a magical thing. Somebody bringing some of these truth in the art shirts there to hit this dye bath to get some new color. We're ready. We're ready. Right. Whatever you want to do. I'm gonna hold you to that. I'm gonna hold you to it. Um, so th- this is a question that I, I came across in, in doing some of the research here. Um, so do you need to be interested in science um, to be like successful at natural dyeing? Because um, I've heard alchemy thrown around. I heard you described this alchemist a few times. So, uh, so, so tell me about that. Do you need to have a, um, an interest in science? I think that what I want people to do is to have an, an interest in multiple um, ways that, that the natural dyes have s- sort of been a part of our everyday life. But we're obviously generations removed from that when you look at places like india you know south asia like people are still connected to those things mm-hmm. and so it, it it isn't like oh do i have to be a scientist it's like oh my auntie is doing this thing and this <laughs> yeah. is what i'm doing right so but you do understand it is for me highly related to cooking you know there mm-hmm. are there are scientific aspects of cooking but you don't have to be a scientist to be a chef, true, right? True. So natural dyes are the same. I would also look at natural dyes through obviously art and practice culturally um, and historically, but then thinking about it from um, really that that lens of like botany, chemistry, um, art, and thinking about history, right? So thinking about the Silk Road and color and how trade and engagement prior to colonial sort of invasion of those things, um, which we have much less access to that written information, but how all of these cultures, right, can be traced back through um, different colorways um, and through trade and engagement in that way. That, that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, that comparison to like, like cooking comes to mind or what have you. Now there's, there's some, some, some bad cooks out there. No, that's a value there statement. There are some bad cooks <laughs> and those people will probably also burn your t-shirts. So don't let them. <laughs> but I, but I do think baking is more science though, because that that's numbers, that's measurements. Like I've, I've talked to some chefs or what have you, and I always, I, I love hearing comparisons to other mediums or other uh, uh, creative practices when describing something so i talked to certain chefs it's like oh yeah it's like playing jazz i'm like hell yeah tell me about it so Mm -hmm. i I like that comparison that you made there um so let's see i got a few more real questions um so so this is another one that that came from this kind of same pool or the same idea so do do certain do the same dye look different on different sources of materials because obviously it's more than textiles and um so so does it look look different is that the depending on how long you maybe uh do the do the uh, dye bath what it, it, it what's that kind of question like um if it does dyes look different on different materials 
Yeah. So one of the things that it's important to think about when you're thinking about fiber is that um, you will ultimately need something that's a natural fiber. So either it's what's called a protein, protein fiber is something that comes from an animal or it's cellulose, which comes from plants. And so cellulose could be linen, cotton, hemp, um, and the fibers that are protein are your silks, your wools, um, you know, thinking about alpaca, things like that. Um, so each of those fibers carry a different um, way that they can be um, colored. So there are different ways to color them, but there are also different shades. You know, there are different ways that those colors retain color in a different way. So there are things called light fastness, wash fastness. Uh, um, and really you're just looking at things that um, when exposed directly to light or indirectly in some terms, um, will not necessarily be bleached as highly sure. um, because all color fades, right? Like you put something in the window, it's going to start to fade. The sun is very strong and it's a concentrated amount of light. But there are colors that are really highly affected by pH. And so that means the higher um, an alkalinity is next to it or the lower, you know, whatever the base might be, that will shift the color as well. Cochineal is highly um, pH sensitive. And so you can get anything from bright pinks to deep purples to um, oranges with different adjustments, some reds. Um, and so, again, like that might not be the thing that you need to put on your body that um, is going to come into contact with your sweat, you know, areas where you're sweating. Mm -hmm. um, I also love that it could be per performative in that way where you could like come in one way, you know, yeah. and leave another way you're like oh that outfit is so different like oh yeah i just switched it up on you um you know i threw some lemon juice on myself in the bathroom and i have a whole new fit so i love that um it's playful in that way um i think we need to be like less serious about permanency because nothing is permanent right. um if you've had a single relationship in your life it ain't gonna last you know nothing lasts forever and i don't mean that in like but even just in the way that you're engaged with the person in that moment, you know, Absolutely. like it doesn't, it things shift. they always change, you know? So, um, there is the, this too shall pass. And so just thinking about things in a more ephemeral way and sure. being more present in what they offer, um, I think is really the beauty of natural dyes, but protein fibers will take, take color much, much better than cellulose fibers. Um, you know, there's also like woods that you can stain, um, colors with, um, but it's a, a layering process. There are, we talked about, you know, vegetable dyed, um, leather tannins that will react and how people originally used to color, um, color leather with, you know, um, black, um, using tannins and irons. And so there's a lot of different things that I think you can, experiment with and what i love about it is just that there's like an ongoing um growth um yeah. even if it looks like i have to come back and refresh that thing um it's not gonna be there forever but you know the transition is also the beauty of it too 
what I'm what I'm hearing there is uh, I think a thing that a lot of people aren't comfortable with is is change, and I think embracing that is important. It's like like there's there's an impermanence there. There you know everything is going to change, and I, I like the way you describe that. Like you know you can go to a party and it's like look man you know you gotta, you gotta have three different fits on a day. It's like all right, a little lemon juice here, boom, different fit. Look at that. I'm like wow, you got the same cut and everything. I know, <laughs> but and also just right. no, recognizing that, you know, moment to moment or what have you, I, I think it adds a different degree of awareness of how you're shopping, how you're, if you're engaged in like textiles, you're buying quality materials. If you want something to last, spend whatever it is up, whatever it is up front, but make sure you're getting something that's quality. You don't want something that's chichney and cheap um, in terms of quality. Uh, and that's, that's also what I'm hearing there. It's at least opening people's minds to have a better understanding of what you're purchasing. I remember when when I was younger, I had maybe 10 pairs of jeans. And I was like, none of these are different. They're just kind of like the same style. It's like, what, what, what am I, like uh, Steve Jobs just wearing the same thing? And it's like, no, you know, just buy two or three good pair, make sure they're different. And then, you know, look at the coloring, look at the stitching, look at these different materials. And you're, you're doing things to be more sustainable. You're doing things to be more knowledgeable where your stuff comes from and how it's being made. Yeah. And we have to be, you know, clear. Like, um, I think what tends to happen is that there's a level of luxury and there's a certain, you know, group of people who can afford it. And then there's like everybody else just scraping for, you know, whatever it is. I mean, that's really how, the market expanded so much was like throwing in all of these like opportunities for people who did have less um, disposable income to really look at like, oh, you you can be flashy here too. Oh, you don't need that now. Now you can be flashy again. You know, I think it's really about like buying what you want to buy, you know, mm-hmm. buying what you feel good about. Like there are things that I might feel are valuable that you don't feel are valuable. Right. And so neither is better or worse. It's just what it is, you know? Yeah. And so I think thinking about like, when we look at luxury, like I remember being, you know, like 20 and going to Prada with a friend when we were in New York and she was like, oh, I have this umbrella that I need to get fixed. And I was like, what? <laughs> Maybe we're going to go to Prada and they're going to like look at your umbrella. Like, what do you mean? We go to Prada. Prada has like the SKU number for this exact uh, umbrella that they bought in Las Vegas five years before. Prada takes it in. They give you a tag number, you know, and they fix the umbrella. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, if we think about it in that way, you know, that's the job of the the vendor, the artisan, the person who's working on it is to provide you with um, something that can be maintained and enjoyed. And so that's what I look at when I look at um, luxury. You know, I don't think about like, oh, I just spent seven million dollars on it. Right. It could it could be trash, too. You know, it's really just about like, what is the quality of care that that um, that that person is offering you in service? And again, I have all these relationship metaphors, but it's the same. It's like, what is the quality of service that this person is providing? You know, Um, and 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 you the same. So, yeah, I just that's how I see it. Yeah. 
the last last real question that I have for you, and, and you know, don't think that you're getting away from these rapid fire questions because a lot of people think, oh, he all forgot time to wrap it up, shameless plugs, and I'm out. Nah. <laughs> uh, so this this is the last one I have. Um, since we're we're coming up on that uh, that 20th anniversary for Station North, I wanted to get maybe some some feedback. Um, you know, maybe describe if you will the the hallmarks of a strong um, arts and cultural district such as like a Station North. Like, what are some of those things that you look for? Because you know you're you're in that area. Yeah, I will say, and I'd like to advance with this, um, be a Gil Scott, one of my favorite poets. Like, I'm new here, right? <laughs> so I've been in Baltimore for four years. Um, I've been welcomed in by many um, members of the community at all different levels, new um, legacy, art, you know, there's all these different spaces, um, the urban farming uh, community. So I feel like what I really see um, as a healthy, thriving station north or an arts district is really uplifting and honoring like all of the voices that are here, not just a singular one, not just the one that uh, shows up for the meetings or the one that has <laughs> access to, you know, um, a certain income, like really just being able to offer a variety. Like my thing about main streets are that the main street should reflect the community. You know, right. we can't just have like a place that uh, is highbrow and, and nothing that um, you can get a grab and go. Right. Yeah. Because that's really honoring all of the, the people that are here. And so I want to honor the people in our neighborhood um, in our work and in our practice and what we do. And so I'm working to to be more present and more visible and listen more and find out what, what is happening here yeah. um, and where do I need to um, soften or open or push a little bit um, to be a better community member. Good stuff. Good stuff there. And I, I, I agree with what you're saying there. I also love the Gil Scott Heron reference. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a um, I did a project on the last poets in high school. It was my capstone okay. project. And yeah. my dad was like, hell yeah, tell me about it. I was like, all right, less. <laughs> it's something that went in America. It's like, all right, can you? Yeah. He's like, Whitey is on the moon. I was like, wow, yeah. can we can we have less? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so that's the wrap up of my real questions. And now I want to ask you a few rapid fire questions. And uh, these are pretty random. So, you know, just whatever comes to mind, let's, you know, top of the dome, let's just do it. Okay. All right. What word do you always misspell? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't think that I'm a bad speller, but I misspell a lot of things. I have a six and a half year old and he's always like, <laughs> asking me something and I'm like I don't know like who knows who knows the answer to that um, I don't know I mean I think that um, probably plants like I probably misspell plant names very and not like the botanical name but yeah. just like the regular <laughs> name I'm like how do you spell we have amaranth for instance in the studio oh, yeah. and I'm like I don't know how to spell that. <laughs> what comes first? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, did you have a nickname growing up? Yes, I have um, a nickname that only my family calls me. So I'm not going to tell anybody here. No. I did it. 
Um, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> my middle name is Juanita, so my um, my family calls me Nita. That's my mom's name. Is it? Yes. Great name. It is. Uh, if your life had a mascot, this is where it gets really weird. If your life had a mascot, what would that mascot be? Well, definitely wouldn't be a penguin because that was my high school mascot, and that was black. <laughs> we were like, you know, already the laughing stock of DC public schools, the <laughs> school that walls with penguin. Um, what would the mascot be? I mean, I'm really fascinated by tigers, mm-hmm. not like Tony the tiger, but like an elegant tiger in the wild. Um, like Ted the tiger. No, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know Ted, but um, yeah, a tiger that is not a cartoon. <laughs> tiger that is real. Everything like has to be a cartoon for me, though. I guess if it's a mascot, it's, a, it's yeah, but a tiger. That's great. And it's it's funny because I feel like if you start looking at like the mascots for like HBCUs, most of them are tigers. We love tigers. <laughs> I guess there you go. And I always wanted to go to a black college because art school is not black, you know? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they claim to be woke sometimes, but uh, it's not black. Mm-hmm. Uh, lastly. What is the silliest invention you heard of? I remember back in the day, the slap chop existed, all of those kind of infomercial sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not great, but in, in so people look for these kitchen gadgets, right? Hey, we hate cutting things. Here's something they'll do to work for you. Yeah. Eh, what do you feel like is a, a silly invention that you heard of? I would imagine, you know, you've come across an infomercial here or there. I mean, so I guess more than the silly invention, because I don't know that I have that story because I'm like, I don't remember, is that I used to work. So I worked news in San Francisco for 10 years Mm -hmm. and I worked until midnight. So I would come home and I needed to like decompress because news is really intense. And so I would either sit in the dark for an hour and just like sit in the dark um, with no sound, no nothing I had to share that with my roommates in case they would get up, you know, just like in the middle of the night, like, wait, wait oh, you're just there. You're like, why are you there? <laughs> right. But the other thing I would do is on a Friday night, I would get off work and I would watch the infomercials um, for like two hours. And I loved it because I was like, this is entertainment. Yes. Right. Like these people are so theatrical in there. Like, oh, no. Oh, 15 more. What do you? Oh, Debbie! Oh, fourteen! Oh, we're going! It's good. Oh my goodness! And you, you can't get this anywhere else. You know, like, like just the, the like height of um, desire. Like it yeah. was just dripping with it. You know, and so I think that is, you know, for me maybe more of what I'm drawn to rather yeah. than the invent. I don't remember half the garbage. You know, I, I fortunately never. You know, I wasn't like you know, buying things, but it was a little bit, (laughs) yeah, it was a little bit like in Requiem for a Dream where she's, um, Ellen Burstein is just watching hours of infomercials, 
Um, I was just so, and and then my roommates joined me because they realized they were like, "This is great." I'm like, "It's great. It's so good." I can almost um, see, I can almost see like the TV just coming after you, like the refrigerator came after her. Exactly. <laughs> At some point, it's like buy something or beat it. You know. This is the last observation I'll have. Um, I it, it, I used to use that. So you mentioned like getting the comparison to relationships a few times. I remember that was a vetting tool I used to use. Of if I was going to date someone, will they stay up with me and watch infomercials, specifically the one that has the ones that have like. Remember when we listened to this growing up, girl? Yeah. And it's just oh, like, yeah. you're so yeah. corny. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I love those. And it was like the only time you saw black people. And they're like, oh, that was my favorite one, David. You know, I loved it. We danced slow. And, yes. you know, like yes. a whole vibe. No. Yeah. It, uh, those were the days. I mean, there's so, so much TV now. Nobody's watching those information. I mean, you know what? Maybe they do because they aren't the Kardashians on those things now. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. it's like, I think people just follow them. But like Joan Rivers, like there were a lot of really solid people who had infomercial spots mm-hmm. and so, so entertaining. So entertaining. Yes. So that's pretty much it. I want to, one, thank you for being on this podcast. This has been a lot of fun. And, and two, I want to encourage and invite you to tell the fine folks where to check out your website, where they can find you at online. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, this felt uh, natural and easy. So thank you. Um, we are at bluelightjunction.com. You can find us online. We also have um, open volunteer hours at the garden at Hidden Harvest every Saturday, 12 to 3. We are there. Um, you don't need to know anything more than how to get there. Um, and we will open up the rest. So we would love to have you. So there you have it, folks. I want to, again, thank Kenya Miles from Blue Light Junction for coming on to the podcast today. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. <laughs> <laughs>